0: In their position. This is True Spies. They worked
1: like a well oiled machine. You know, once they breached the building, it was all rapid. They took control of the entry point, they spread out in the building, and they just blasted everybody right there. They just basically hosed everybody
0: in that room. I'm Vanessa Kirby, and this is True Spies. Mexican Maneuvers Part One. Pancho and Cisco, Texcoco, Mexico. A dusty, semi-rural town on the outskirts of the capital. A place that has seen violence for hundreds of years. Hernan Cortes even built the ships destined to destroy the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan here. By the late 1990s, the Mexican police have been at war with ruthless Texcoco gangs for years. But this story is about more than your usual drug-fueled rift between the Mexican state and its adversaries. It centers on two Americans, drafted in to help some of Mexico's wealthiest families recover kidnapped loved ones.
1: We watched the average ransom of a wealthy person, when somebody had money, go from hundreds of thousands into the 30 or 40 million, and a scale in between.
0: These two men had not only the skill to negotiate a hostage situation, they also had the audacity to then track down the ransom money and the gang responsible.
1: I think they wanted like three million US dollars. You ever try and mark three million worth of greenbacks and pesos?
0: The two Americans audacious enough to pull off such stunts? Nick Brockhausen and Jeff Miller. You may remember them from episode 91, where they hatched a plan to save the Bosnian Muslim population from the atrocities of mid-90s Sarajevo. A few years later, they found themselves fielding calls from desperate families just south of the U.S. border as the Mexican kidnapping epidemic exploded. As Nick explains,
1: At that time, it was still, you didn't have the cartel, so to speak. You had, the cartel was in the drug business, and kidnappers were a separate industry, even though they worked together and, you know, there was things that, you know, were with both communities. But it was pretty much separated. And by the time the year 2000 rolled around, it had become, you know, an industry, to the point where they would rent the hostages, to another group whose only function was to uh, care for them. You know, we busted a place one time and it had uh, two nurses and a nutritionist, as well as nine kidnap victims in it. So, you know, it, it had grown more and more organized over the years.
0: And why, you might wonder, were desperate families calling these two Americans in particular Perhaps because both Nick and Jeff are ex-special forces, the elite. Nick served in MACV SOG during the Vietnam War, short for Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. The unit conducted some of the most dangerous and covert missions of the conflict, often landing deep behind enemy lines, massively outnumbered and outgunned.
1: If you're in the military, you want to be the best possible you can do. I mean, that was it. And to me, I never wanted to be anything but Special Forces once I got into it.
0: Jeff took a slightly different path, spending most of his career in Special Forces working in intelligence. The two met by chance on an airbase in Berlin in 1978 as the West tried to keep a beady eye on Soviet activity behind the Iron Curtain. By the early 80s, however, they both wanted out.
2: Then when we both left the service in 1982, within about three or four months of each other.
0: But what do two Special Forces veterans do with their newfound freedom? Leave it all behind and lead an ordinary life? Impossible.
1: There's no more addictive drug than adrenaline. Yeah, you get to the point where you don't know any other way of life. You know, we're doing it for over a decade each, and... Uh, You know, it's pretty much ingrained into you are what you became because of that. So transitioning to Sibby Street, as they used to call it, we had to find something that, you know, fit our grill because I just couldn't see myself being the greeter at Walmart.
0: Jeff invited Nick on his first contract not long after they demobbed, training the International Association of Chiefs of Police. The two of them never looked back.
2: We've been doing things around the world together uh, as private contractors for, well, since 1982. Fifty years. Not quite. Forty. Forty years? Yeah. Uh, I can't count.
0: Nick's first job in Mexico involved training bodyguards for some of the country's wealthiest families.
1: And we still had a lot of talent and ideas about, especially, you know, like SWAT tactics, working intel groups, And there was a need for it on the outside, so we kind of welded ourselves to that end of the
0: effort. These services were essential by the late 90s in Mexico. Kidnapping was developing into a professional business, and these wealthy families knew they needed professional help. The police were sometimes overwhelmed and often corrupt. Nick and Jeff's military expertise in covert tracking and package retrieval were a perfect match.
1: When we were down there, I think at that time when we uh, linked up with the special police unit, they were estimating there were 2,500 kidnapping gangs in Mexico City alone. That's the guys that come up and rob you and take you and try and get money out of of your family in a one- or two-day kidnapping all the way out to somebody they're going to hold until they get the full ransom.
0: Through his time around the Mexican elite, Nick saw another business opportunity. These families had a huge appetite for armored cars.
1: You know, the kidnapping, who buys armored cars? The wealthy. Who gets kidnapped? The wealthy. So it was a natural flow of events. And things just kind of snowballed from there. As long as we were willing to be adaptive and put out a good product, one way or the other, whether you're doing services or training, but there
0: was a problem. The vehicles Nick was sourcing for these families were not up to the standard he needed.
1: I tried to go to Ogera Hess, the big American manufacturer. They were too expensive and had no such thing as customer service. So I cast around and I found him.
0: He is Carlos, a tall, handsome Lebanese Mexican with impeccable manners and courtly charm. Carlos owned an armoring plant, and his firm was one of the premier armored car manufacturers in the country. Nick starts buying his vehicles from him. But one day, it's Carlos who wants something from Nick. Out of the blue, Carlos rings Nick, asking if he can help with a request from a mutual associate of theirs, a man by the name of Ricardo.
2: Ricardo, he was an interesting character. Smart but kind of crude and rough around the edges. He looked like what's his name Simpson, I don't know. the father and Simpson and the son. Oh, Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson. <laughs> he did. He
1: looked yeah. like Homer Simpson. Yeah,
2: he does kind of. Come to think of it,
0: Ricardo was a security guard at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico before setting up his own private security consultancy. While Carlos came across like a Spanish grandee. Ricardo was something between a carnival hawker and bar and brawler. Tough, canny. But Nick trusted him, and Ricardo needed his help.
2: He was always kind of around, and um, yeah, he's the one that came up with the first of the kidnappings.
0: Ricardo had a client whose son had been taken in broad daylight at a busy city interchange. He'd made himself an easy target for the gangs, By ignoring the meticulous plans laid out for him to avoid precisely this sort of thing from happening. He
1: did everything he was told not to do. Don't be there with your windows open, stopped in traffic, with the radio on real loud, not paying attention to what's going on around you. It was obvious, even at this stage, that
0: the police were involved too.
1: 90% of the kidnapping cases had police involvement in one way or another. Like when a kid was grabbed, there was a traffic cop on a little white stand. They direct traffic because it's a big intersection right by the university coming off the smaller streets into the big circle. And he watched the whole thing go down and didn't even get off his stand. So obviously somebody paid him to be blind that day. What's the old saying? Silver or lead? Take the silver or we're going to kill you.
0: 24 hours after the kidnapping, the gang called the family to lay out their demands. $3 million dropped at a location of their choice and no police, otherwise the kid was dead. Nick had several requests of his own, however, before he agreed to come on board with the rescue operation.
1: We did contracts. We told them we would do everything in our power to assist the police in getting your. your loved one back. In in Mexico, I would never go so far as to guarantee the life of the hostage. It's got to be, you know, we're going to do our best effort to make this go smoothly and make it go safely. But if the hostage dies, the hostage dies.
0: The case is also moved out of the hands of the local police to a specially vetted state unit. But Nick wasn't taking any chances. He used his own connections before making up his mind.
1: I vetted them thoroughly through my padrino, my godfather, who's the senior partner of the most prestigious law firm in Mexico. So his connections with the government and with, you know, people who really are trying to run Mexico were invaluable because they, they got a clean brush saying, yeah, these guys are trustworthy, go with it.
0: Nick also insists on Jeff coming down to Mexico to handle logistics and plan an escape route if the drop turns ugly.
1: I don't care how much assurances I was getting from the state governor or or even through my padrino. There's nobody better than coming up with plan B, which is the one you pull out of your pocket when everything else falls apart. So he had a dual function, one is the back door, and also to
2: provide me with intel. Well, you're dealing with enormous amounts of money that is basically loose. You can't trust anybody, maybe especially the police, because the police are so heavily involved in so much of the crime down there.
0: Nick and Jeff then start investigating how to get ahead of the gang and track the $3 million ransom without being caught. Jeff suggests an experimental piece of chemical tagant technology being cooked up by an ex-CIA scientist in a commercial lab in Washington, D.C. A tagant is a unique, invisible material that is impossible to duplicate. Sort of like a chemical fingerprint that can be planted on an object. In this case, $3 million in cash.
2: I remember going back to D.C. and hanging around the office with these guys. And um, as you can imagine, it's a weird little crew of eggheads and, you know, who spend their lives studying esoteric things like identifiable fluorocarbons.
0: Independent contractors like Nick and Jeff were an ideal match for secretive companies who wanted to test their new contraptions out in the wild.
2: We have, over the years, they did test a lot of different experimental technologies just because the kind of things we were out there doing made us an easy test agency with plausible deniability.
0: Colorless, odorless, yet still perceptible with a specially made scanning machine. It was perfect for tracking millions of dollars that someone didn't want to be tracked.
1: The biggest thing about the tagging was that it was found nowhere else in nature. And uh, that's what made it unique. You could not deny there was only that, no false positives. It's only that particular compound that we're reading.
0: Nick flew back to the US to pick up the tagant and scanner, but he could already see an issue. The company insisted that the machine be accompanied by its own men, which meant bringing two of them with Nick on the mission.
1: Both of them were former Marines. And uh, one had been a staff sergeant the other one had been a buck sergeant something like that many years ago. So they come down and the senior guy, who doesn't know how to operate the machine all that well, the other guy does it perfectly, constantly making, you know, little quips about, well, you know, these thieving Mexicans are going to do this. We've got to be careful about protecting the technology, you know, arf, arf, arf. It got to the point where he was getting beyond
0: annoying about it. And there's another problem. After arriving back in Mexico with his two unwanted guests, Nick learns more about the gang leader he's dealing with.
1: He had been in special forces, the Mexican special forces, and his wife got sick. He was a major. His wife got sick, and instead of taking her to the Hidalgo hospital, they put her in the hospital where all the Indians go, the poor people, and she died. At that point, he decided he was going to get back at the military and the government. You know, later, there was an entire group of people from special forces that deserted en masse. They're now their own cartel. I mean, this guy, he was ruthless.
0: Once the family had learned who the gang was, the madre took matters into her own hands and took control of the hostage negotiations herself.
1: Part of the motivation on her taking over the ne- negotiations was they had had a case within two or three days of his kidnapping where they, a gang, grabbed a kid, demanded ransom, and then they wanted the ransom delivered in a public toilet. It had to be dropped, and then they'd go to a public toilet and find their son, who would be tied up. He wasn't tied up, his throat was slit, and he was laying on the floor. So the mom was not going to take any chances with their son.
0: To Nick's astonishment, though, the mother proved to be more effective than the trained negotiators offered up by the police.
1: The gang called her iron britches, and she was great. I'm telling you, she stuck to her points. She made sure that she always had a proof of life every 72 hours and as we got closer it was every 24 hours that they had to do something to show that he was still alive you know you can read all the textbooks they go wow for god's sakes don't let the family negotiate with the gang in this case she was the best person for the job
0: the gang demands that one person alone drops the ransom they are instructed to retrieve a burner phone hidden in a cubicle of a public toilet keep it on at all times and await further instructions. Eventually, the phone rings. The person nominated to drop the $3 million is ordered to follow one of the major toll roads out of the city. The whole operation is now live.
1: That way of operating was a signature of this gang. Same techniques, same method of operation. You drive out the toll roads until somebody goes, Turn here up this arroyo. And the cops and, and the gang are playing a game of surveillance, counter-surveillance. While the guy's going out to deliver the money, there's somebody following him in a vehicle. Or, you know, that, and they use the same technique, three, four vehicles, and they go to a heavily populated area out to a sparsely populated area. So they can detect if anybody's behind that vehicle.
0: The state police unit have opted for loose surveillance on the driver and drop point just off the highway.
1: You know, as far as if the victim was harmed, it's risky business. There's always the chance that somebody's going to get a stray round. Or the gang loses his discipline and just wants to whack the victim because he saw too much. You know, there's a lot of different variables in that. And how do we
0: deal with it? Pragmatism. The chemical tagant offers Nick and Jeff the pragmatism they need. The beauty of this tagant is
2: you don't have to do close surveillance. You can be way off where your surveillance cannot be detected because you're not actively following a car. You're following following a chemical trail that that car is leaving in its wake.
0: A couple of hours after the ransom is delivered and the hostage released, the machine lights up. They have a trace of the cash. The first phase of the mission is complete, but the most dangerous phase is about to begin.
3: Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, It's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's Journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android.
0: By the time Nick's crew reach the drop site to begin tailing the cache, there's already a problem. The police unit, ferrying the tagant detector, need to collect some more equipment. It's about a
1: half mile away on the other side of a big parking lot.
0: One of the Marines accompanying the machine loses his cool.
1: And as soon as they got in the vehicle and hauled off, this guy's going, Adam, see, I told you the thieving Mexicans are stealing our technology. They're going to go over there and take pictures of it and break it apart. Meanwhile, the rest of the team had heard this guy. All these guys spoke English. So they heard his rant and everything.
0: The unwanted guest is threatening the mission. What would you do in Nick's position?
1: When they came back over, I got him over to the side and I said, you go back to the hotel. Right now, you're about that far from me turning you over to the people you just called a bunch of, you know, MFs and liars and thieves and all that. And they understood you. So go back to the hotel and Ricardo will come see you and arrange for your transport out of this country tonight. And then I called up Ricardo and said, you know, this is the problem with this guy. Get him out of here.
0: While Nick's unit are dealing with the problem marine, the state police have already identified a couple of the safe houses used by the gang. They're based in Texcoco, on the outskirts of Mexico City. The state police comandante orders everyone back to base to regroup. The next morning, Nick is quietly breakfasting alone at his hotel, strategically placed opposite the U.S. embassy. All seems calm until the comandante marches straight up to him.
1: They came into the dining room and, uh, you know, you can tell these guys are obviously undercover cops and they're all packing and that, and everybody in there is all round-eyed like that. And they said, come on, you gotta go with us. And he pulls out a, I swear, this bulletproof vest had to have been made out of pressed cotton. It was so old. And insisted that I put it on right there. They basically palmed me a weapon, you know, because by law, I'm not permitted to be armed in Mexico. But as a witness, if I happen to pick up a gun in a gunfight, that's fair.
0: As the head waiter is trying to calm down the fellow diners, Nick joins the column of what looks like a small army streaming out of the hotel lobby into a line of armoured SUVs. On the way, he spots Jeff drop his newspaper, signalling that he'll follow the convoy undetected by both the gang and the police.
1: Miller was there because he has my back.
0: It's a role that Jeff plays particularly well.
2: I don't fit the profile, for one thing. I've had white hair since I was in my late 40s. So I can play old really well. Well, I don't need to play it anymore, but even back in those days, i can play old real well. People don't notice the elderly They tend to be somewhat invisible. People are looking for people that fit the profile of a young man with a military vibe. And I'm very good at not looking like that. So I guess that helps. Something the
1: current generation can't get through their head. Yeah. You know, tattoos and earrings, you know, all beefed up by working out 16 hours a day is not what they mean when they say blend in with the crowd.
0: As the convoy pulls out of town towards Texcoco, the machine begins to flicker. Eventually, the crew passes a group of small farmhouses on the left of the road. The machine spikes. The Comandante orders four SUVs from the group to peel off and encircle the village. Nick and the rest of the team carry on toward the main target, a safe house in town identified as the gang's secret headquarters. Nick inspects the equipment he's been given. A 9 millimeter pistol and an old bulletproof vest. He notices something unusual about the gun.
1: It did have the numbers removed. I did remember that. So they obviously got it out of the property room.
0: Nick turns to one of the state police sat beside him. He shrugs and gives a faint smile. The irony of having a dead Sicario's pistol for a gang raid is not lost on either of them. Eventually, the convoy reaches Texcoco. The commandante orders them to drive past the local police station on the way to the hideout.
1: We drove by there and I realized it was a, a radio station, you know, like WKRP Cincinnati, on one side. And on the other side was the police headquarters with the, you know, the Iron Gate and, you know, the big lot out back.
0: The commandante suspects local police involvement with the gang sure enough, as they reach the station, the machine spikes again. Some of the ransom money is there. More SUVs drop out of the column and surveil both the station and all other sites that give off readings during the route. All are ready to raid each location at the same time the main team hits the gang's headquarters. As they near the primary target, there's another problem. A news crew has set up before they can cordon off the area a deadly gang raid could end up being on live television.
1: They weren't just hanging around. They'd been doing another story right down the street. They were a a major news crew, like from Televisio, and they saw all the activity around that house, and they managed to sneak through the police lines before they got the cordon established all the way around the neighborhood and the building. So they were there, you know, you can't run them off because it shows if they're looking out the window, they're going to see a news crew. But if you run out there to get them out of there, they're going to see a news crew and a bunch of police and do the math.
0: Despite the commotion, Jeff stays hidden in the background, calm, alert. He's already linked up with some of their other contacts in the area and is ready to activate Plan B and get them out of there if the situation turns sour.
2: I was just hanging back, watching very carefully what was going on, ready in case I was needed. Which is what he was supposed to be doing.
0: The commandante decides now is the moment. The assault team pours out of the SUVs, encircles the house, and awaits the order to breach. Nick is right behind the initial assault team. Um, I mean, it's classic
1: textbook. These guys have been working together for several years. and They came from all different parts of the state police. And uh, there was, you know, some guys had been detectives, some guys had been, you know, patrol officers, whatever. But they practiced, 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 practiced on their entry techniques and on their intel gathering, on their crisis management, so to speak. So they, they worked like a
0: well-oiled machine. And then... The commandante gives the order. Units roll into the house from every direction. Immediately, there's gunfire on every floor. Stun grenades explode. The noise is deafening, something from the front line of a war zone.
1: Once they breached the building, it was all rapid. They took control of the
0: entry point
1: As they spread out in the building, they were checking off rooms that were clear.
0: As the assault team enters one room, they met with submachine gunfire.
1: When they burst in through the door, this guy was so quick, he got that submachine gun up and started firing at him, and they just blasted everybody right there, and then went through and cleared it. They just basically hosed everybody in that room.
0: Nick makes entry with a follow-up team the assault unit are now locking down the building.
1: There was very few bullet holes on the wall of the point of their entry. And there was a whole bunch of them on the other side and on the two side walls. So they had kind of, if you looked at it, you could see the fire sectors of the assault team almost. And of course the victims, the gang members, not victims. In the
0: center of the room before him, Circled around piles of the ransom money are four of the gang, dead. Next to them is a blood-spattered Wolfer MPK submachine gun, government issue. The Comandante turns to Nick and points to one of the bodies. It is the Deputy State Attorney General. He had been counting out the ransom bills as the assault team busted through the door. You
1: know, they knew that uh, obviously the gang had some pretty high, you know, contacts in the government but they did not know specifically that it was this guy. You know, and and I think the commandante told me later, he said, that was a real surprise when we saw who it was. We just knew that somebody in the State Department of Justice was involved with this gang and has been involved with this gang.
0: By the window, there are two more of the gang. One is still alive writhing in pain from shots to the gut and leg.
1: He was a sicario, a gunman.
0: Everyone is ordered to exit the building and regroup. Two officers stay with the bleeding sicario. Neither gives him first aid.
1: They left a guy on the floor to let him bleed out. Rather than, you know, shoot him again, they just let him bleed out. I was talking to the uh, commandante and, you know, musing over the fact that they didn't leave any he looked at me and he said, we don't take them to prison because all they are is a recruitment depot for the kidnap gangs. They'll go in and recruit members in in prison to join them in in the gang. So we just shut down their recruitment office.
0: Once outside, Nick and the rest of the unit have a rare moment to decompress.
1: When you do things like this, you get this terrible burst of adrenaline. And it really is, you know, the most addictive drug.
0: A commandante sees Nick struggling to remove the old bulletproof vest handed to him. I'm pulling that stupid
1: vest off. Comes up and he goes, uh, he's trying to explain to me. He was a former surgeon. And uh, he's trying to explain to me about adrenaline's effect on the body. And then to, I know all that. They don't even make oral sex this exciting in my country. Actually, I think he called me a sick gringo.
0: Out of the corner of his eye, Nick spots Jeff down the street. After witnessing what he has just witnessed, most people would probably be at least a little concerned. But Jeff is not most people.
2: Nothing was unusual that was raising any red flags and I didn't feel a need to uh, inject myself in any way.
0: Two police officers then approach him, though. Nick turns to the commandante. You
2: know, I saw him down there being questioned
1: on the street, and I said, you know, that's one of mine down there. And he said, we know. We've been following him from the last drop-off point. So evidently, they'd missed him all the time prior to that. But had, uh, you know, watched that he had arrived at the scene, so they were keeping an eye on him. That's when he... Yeah, you know, he looked at me and he goes, Pancho and Cisco, huh?
0: Pancho and Cisco. Two 1950s TV desperados immortalized for their exploits assisting the needy when the law isn't enough. The commander radios the two officers to let Jeff go. They give him back his papers and he disappears into the hazy Mexican afternoon sun. Meanwhile, The news crew that had seen the whole thing were now turning their attention to the back of the building. Several men are lying on the floor, screaming in pain. One has a clear compound fracture to his leg. Three of those
1: guys jumped out the window to save their ass when the assault took place. They were in a back room that was facing the street, and the news crew was almost directly below. And when they heard the other room getting filled up with automatic fire, they just jumped
0: out the window. As these remaining Sicarios are rounded up, the Comandante motions for Nick to get in his SUV. They're going to the local police station. He said, "We, we suspect that there's heavy involvement
1: by the police in this. And everybody turned up hot except two guys that had been on vacation. Hadn't been there when the incident went down. They were the only two that were not hot from actively participating in the split up of the cash. Those are the two luckiest cops in Mexico.
0: As he's being driven back to the hotel with a hostage safe, the ransom retrieved, and the gang caught, Nick looks around at the special state police unit he's been working with.
1: That's why I admired these guys so much. You know, they paid for all their own stuff. They paid for their own ammunition. They paid for, uh, like, if they go on surveillance and they had to rent a hotel room or something like that, They paid for it, and they did not get reimbursed for it. So they were really, really dedicated guys.
0: Despite the mission's success, Nick suspects the unit is not completely satisfied. Why? Because someone is missing. The gang's notorious leader. Remember, the Mexican military guy whose wife died in a state-run hospital wasn't at the raid.
1: I mean, it was obvious from this entire group. They knew they were going after somebody that they really, really wanted to dial in. So they were, you know, full of piss and vinegar right from the beginning.
0: After meeting with Ricardo and Jeff back at the hotel, Nick learns more about the case and just how ruthless the gang's leader is.
1: This guy is SF school trained, so everything is compartmentalized, you know, the guys who grab the kid, aren't with the gang all the time, and don't know the other members of the gang, you know, a cellular organization. So the two guys that were given the job of getting rid of the, the kid had a Camaro, and uh, they, instead of taking it out and trashing it and burning it, like they were instructed to, they did another crime with it and got caught by a couple of state police uh, troopers who
0: realized that it was the kid's car. After a few days in jail, these two gang members are released on bail.
1: Within 48 hours, they found their beaten bodies on the side of a road. He killed them for not following instructions.
0: Like I said, ruthless. But Nick and Jeff's time in Mexico is coming to an end for now. Nick heads off on some security investigative work for a mining conglomerate. Jeff goes off grid on what Nick calls one of his semi-regular disappearing acts, communing with his past and present ghosts. But then, some six months later, Carlos, the courtly Lebanese Mexican who had first contacted Nick, is back in touch. There's been another kidnapping.
1: The victim was... uh the patriarch of a family that owned uh, the largest dairy processing plant and operation in Mexico. He was in the habit of going around and collecting the monies from the individual dairies every week. And he had a bodyguard driver, basically is what he had for security. And he was at one of those creameries when they snatched him. They walked in the front door, they grabbed the driver out in the parking lot and subdued him, walked in, grabbed the old man, and they were gone.
0: This time, however, Nick finds himself largely without Jeff's help. And more than that, his team ends up ahead of their police unit, facing the gang alone.
1: He's wearing a $800 designer tracksuit. Now he has at least one of the pistols shoved in his belt line, and he's got his hand on the submachine gun. And he's screaming in Spanish about, I've been sitting in here for over a day tracking you. If I have to come down there and get you, we're going to kill everybody in the village and the dogs, and, you know, just going on and on. And the state police officer was standing there, and he's going, "Uh, aren't we supposed to be clandestine?